And then the last point, and it kind of goes to a point that you were making earlier. And that is that everybody counts or nobody counts. That, that, yep. that the digital divide is not just a geographic divide. It is also an economic divide. And one of the major disappointments about the Trump FCC has been that they talk a bold talk about wanting to do something about the digital divide and then don't deliver. Hi, this is David Goodfriend, and you're listening to the Goodfriend Group Podcast. President Harry Truman used to say, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. But in this case, if you want a good friend in Washington, you've come to the right place. I talk to people from technology, telecommunications, and media. These are my good friends, and now they're here to talk to you. This week, I spoke with my good friend, Tom Wheeler, the former chairman of the FCC. We talked about net neutrality, the coronavirus crisis, and what he would have done if he were still chairman. He gives us five things that he believes would have made a major difference for America's workers and school children. Well, I want to thank you, Tom Wheeler, for coming on the Good Friend Group podcast. You are the former chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, and you made history when, uh, under your leadership, the FCC issued net neutrality rules and designated broadband to be title uh, two uh, public utility service. So here we are in the middle of the COVID crisis. Everybody, and I mean everybody, who can possibly get on the internet and even uh, some people who should be getting on the internet and can't, we are impacted by that decision and we're impacted by the current chairman's decision to roll back those rules, the ones that you did that were upheld by the DC circuit. So here's my question for you. Right now we hear Republicans saying, see, I told you so. We didn't need Title II. We didn't need net neutrality rules at all. Everything's going great. How do you respond to that? Well, first of all, David, it's great to be with you, and thank you for uh, inviting me. Um, you know, when you when you look at, at at how everybody seems to be piling on um, the net neutrality rules right now, you know, I'm 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 reminded of that old line that a crisis is a terrible thing to waste, right. <laughs> in which people go out. And, and say, how can I flog all of my old arguments um, uh, based upon this new reality and do a little revisionist uh, history? Mm. Um, I mean, let's, let's, let's be real specific here. The internet held up, has held up well because of the investments in the initiatives that began while net neutrality was the law of the land. Ah. You know, you know the spending, David, the spending on um, uh, by the ISPs, the Internet Service Providers, was higher each year from 2015 to 2018 when the net neutrality rules in place than it was before or that it has been since they were taken off. 
So the argument that somehow, oh, this is has discouraged investment is specious. And um, and 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 what's really interesting is that while we hear all this lip service being delivered about investment in broadband, what we're seeing these broadband companies do is stock buybacks instead of building broadband. Uh, and I just think we need to understand that from the beginning of our electronic networks, they have always been open and non-discriminative. You know, go back to Abraham Lincoln hmm. and the Telegraph, the Pacific Telegraph Act of 1862 stipulated that it had to be first come, first served, non-discriminatory access to the telegraph because it was a critical service. The telephone obviously um, uh, adopted a similar kind of concept of non-discriminatory uh, access. Critical communications should not have somebody sitting there making judgments uh, as to, well, I can discriminate this way or I can discriminate that, that way. And, and, uh, and it's always been that way historically. But somehow when, when our networks went digital, the companies saw an opportunity to claim that it was different. No, it's not different. It is a critical asset. COVID has proved it to be more critical than ever. You know, it, it, you know the, the residential internet at one point in time was you know, a nice to have because I could watch Netflix and, and, uh, and, and, and this sort of thing. Today, it's critical to have. And it just seems to me that when you're dealing with a critical piece of infrastructure such as this, there ought to be a public interest representation and not just whatever the companies want to do. Yeah, well, it seems as though we, we shouldn't even have to argue about whether or not broadband is uh, a necessity like water or electricity. It certainly is. Um, but I think our, our current regulators have decided to take a completely hands-off approach and basically go on bended knee and ask the ISPs, would you please commit to these voluntary uh, standards? If you were in charge right now, and I think we, anybody listening to this can agree, I'd rather, you know, I'd like to imagine a world in which you're in charge. Uh, I, you're in charge of the FCC. What would you be doing, uh, not only with respect to net neutrality? I mean, I assume that you would we'd be back in a Title II uh, realm. What would you be doing with respect to net neutrality, but also broadband access? Because there are a lot of people who would like to be able to log on to do their homework or whatever, and they can't. Oh, boy, David. Um, <laughs> in the time we have. Yeah. No, oh, let me count the ways, you know. Um, <laughs> but let's, you know, let's back up here. So, so somewhere between 21 and 42 million people are um, are not able to connect to broadband internet. 
And, and, you know, we have had a government program run by the FCC um, called the Universal Service Fund uh, in place for years. Um, and, um, and it has failed to bridge that so-called digital divide. Right. In, in the last five years alone, the government has spent $22 billion, supposedly for the purpose of bringing broadband internet to areas where it's not otherwise available. And, um, and yet we have this terrible, uh, this terrible problem of uncertainty. I would, you know, there, there are, I think there are five goals that we ought to be pursuing here, David. Um, and, and, um, and that any, um, responsible administration, uh, would, would want to pursue. First of all, we need to pay for broadband connections directly. Um, it used to bug the bejesus out of me that the way the program was set up was that you subsidized operating expenditures in the hopes that some money would trickle over into capital expenditures. And, and, and when you would finally decide what those, the, those OPEX subsidies would be, it was part of a negotiation with the carriers saying, well, if I give you this much, how much will you build? No, let's, let's understand. The problem is the capital expenditures necessary to build broadband connectivity. So let's go and pay for that directly and let's pay for it once and you know so the the estimate out there the, the round number is going to cost 80 billion dollars to connect uh, everybody in america that is a small price to pay but let's pay it once and let's pay for delivery second point let's pay anyone who is a qualified constructor. We, if, if, if the local electric utility wants to build broadband to unserved homes, let's help them do it. Um, if the local municipality wants to, let's hope them, help them do it. You know, one of the things that we did during, during my tenure was we changed the E-rate program, which, which supports uh, broadband connectivity for, for schools and libraries so that they didn't, they didn't have to just deal with their local telephone company. If necessary, they could go out and find a competitor to that local company. And I know you'll be shocked, David, to discover that when competition was introduced, services went up and prices went down. Isn't that incredible? We ought to be doing Amazing. we ought to be doing the same thing here. Thirdly. Now I think yeah. I think just yeah. to just to stop you on that point, um, I think you worked with uh, a guy who I grew up with on the same street, Evan Marwell. Evan Marwell is Evan Marwell. There ought to be a statue in the park. To Evan Marwell and the great job that Education Superhighway did 
because here was an outside group that said, let's take a fact-based approach to what is needed. And then once the rule was in place, let's work with local governments to make sure they take it, local and state governments to make sure they take advantage of it. Evan Marwell is an American asset. Well, I'll have to uh, see back in our neighborhood in Wisconsin if they'd put up that statue. But in the, in the meantime, um, what you did was you took uh, connectivity to schools from 10% to about 99%. Yes. And it's been supported not just uh, at the federal level, but as you say, at the state level, and not just by Democrats, but Republican governors, Democratic yes. governors, uh, and even the current chair of the FCC. So it seems like there's just widespread agreement that these reforms to E-rate worked and should be uh, continued. Is that the answer to addressing the lack of connectivity that so many children have right now? There are millions of school children who are told to shelter in place and then they can't learn because they don't have broadband. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, so what are we finding? What we're finding is, is a result of the E-rate reforms we put in place. The cost per megabit of service has been rapidly uh, decreasing. Um, and so the overall costs of, of delivering service, therefore being affected, let's take some of that savings and use those funds to help pay for those students to be able to connect at home. You know, I, you know, I've got I, I've got a friend uh, by the name of Mike Geekin, who is um, working on a project in southeast Ohio. And and while while Wisconsin is important to you, I am a thoroughbred Buckeye. And, um, and so, and, and, and came out, my family came out of uh, the Appalachian Hills uh, of, of Southeast Ohio. And, and mm-hmm. what he's finding there is this incredible lack of connectivity because the broadband networks haven't been extended. And so the libraries, the local libraries are are lending out hotspots so that kids can get online. And, um, you know, this doesn't make any sense. We, you know, again, back to the point we were talking about a minute ago. If, if 20 to 40 million Americans are not able to access the most important network of the 21st century, we're doing something seriously wrong. If, if, if kids are given homework that requires their use to the internet of the internet, but they can't get on. We're doing something seriously wrong. And what COVID has done is to force us to come to grips with this by showing, uh, uh, but by shining a spotlight uh, on it. Right. But, but that goes, that, that kind of goes to my third point, David. Okay. Oh, but, sorry. You know, you know, so, I mean, I got to, you know, Hey, I got a five, you asked me, what would I do? And I said, I got five things. I'm going to roll up your sleeves. Okay. I'm, I got five. I'm I got five things. So the so the the <laughs> third is that we need to demand that the connectivity that we're building is high speed connectivity. You know, when when we were in office, we raised the definition of what is broadband to 25 megabits per second up and three or, or down and three megabits up. It was right. opposed by my colleagues, the Republicans, um, who currently um, are in the majority uh, at the commission. I said at the time that that was table stakes. 
I mean, we need 100 megabits uh, and we need to be symmetrical uh, each way. And here is the real head scratcher. In the coronavirus bill, the CARES bill, um, the past Congress, there was something like $100 million that was sent to the Department of Agriculture for their Rural Utility Service loan program to build broadband. And they only required 10 megabits of service. It is outrageous that in this day and age, anybody should be building 10 megabits of service, let alone doing it with public funds. That's the third point. Well, I just have, yeah. to, I just have to say, just on that point, I mean, I, I'm biased because I'm a former legal advisor at the FCC. You may be biased because you're a former chairman, but I'm sorry. The Rural Utility Service is not the place to get the job done. I've just been let down over and over again. I remember 10 years ago when the Obama administration had its stimulus bill, billions of dollars given to RUS. We had to fight, scratch and claw just to get a little bit of money for satellite broadband that ended up being a much higher return on the dollar. I, I don't get it, but. But I'm biased. I, I don't. I just don't think our U.S. has a good track record here. Um, and, and the shocking thing is that what ends up being 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 done is that they borrow money from the agriculture department and pay it off with money from the FCC. Let's cut out the middleman and let's just make sure that people have money and are instructed to build, not all this other. Amen. The, okay. Point, point number, number four. four. Let's support state and local governments who want to step up. You talked about our friend Evan Marwell. The great thing that he did after we changed the E-rate rules was he went out and worked with state governors, regardless of their party, to take advantage of a provision that we put in that said, okay, you know, we'll pay for 80% of the connectivity, but the 20% is going to be on you, the local school or library. But we said, you know what, if you'll get your state government to pay half of that, we'll pony up the other half. And so Evan went out and got state governors to put up money to trigger the FCC matching funds. And that was the real that was one of the real breakthroughs. But what we've got right now in in the Trump FCC now just. You know, get ready for it, David. What we've got right now is a situation where the funds the FCC distributes to help uh, build out broadband in unserved areas cannot go to places where there is a state program doing a similar thing. No, we ought to be in alliance. We ought not to be fighting each other. So this is great. A state says, I want to step up, and the FCC says, oh, well, then I won't do anything. No. We ought to be in alliance. And then the other thing is where, where um, there is a local government, a municipality or a county that, that wants to step up and um and uh, and 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 build their own infrastructure that ought to be allowed and we ought to be supporting that because if the people are unhappy with the service they don't get or the low, low level of service they do get and they want to organize through their elected officials to get something better 
that's about as American as apple pie. And we ought to be Mm -hmm. supporting that. And then the last point, and it kind of goes to a point that you were making earlier. And that is that everybody counts or nobody counts. That, that, That the digital divide is not just a geographic divide. It is also an economic divide. And one of the major disappointments about the Trump FCC has been that they talk a bold talk about wanting to do something about the digital divide and then don't deliver. So, for instance, there's a program called the Lifeline program that was put in during the Reagan administration to support telephone service so that regardless of your income, you had the ability to call 911 and other and then have limited uses of of the phone it 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 morphed over time into wireless and we helped morph it into uh into broadband uh principally wirelessly delivered uh internet access and uh and the trump fcc comes in and one of the first things it does while saying oh we support um, the, um, the, uh, the, the access to the internet for everyone, they then said that they would not support the companies that were the major companies providing this service, so-called non-facilities-based carriers. And it's a classic example of talking out of both sides of your mouth. The fact of the matter is we need access two networks in unserved rural areas and we need access on networks for everyone. That was part one of my interview with Tom Wheeler, but I definitely recommend that you listen to part two where Tom gives us his insights on what a Biden presidency might look like, local journalism, and what history will say about us today. You've been listening to the Good Friend Group podcast. Special thanks to my colleagues, Brian Hess and Megan Sun. Please subscribe to the Good Friend Group podcast and share with family and friends. I'm David Goodfriend. See you next time. Thanks.